Cool. What, who are you thinking? David Lynch, obviously. <laughs> I had a feeling. All right, let's do Lynch then. All right, Lynch it is. Nice. Okay. So our next episode will be David Lynch. Holy crap. format first episode of the new format are you ready for this yeah i think so uh, speaking of existential it's kind of appropriate that that's the way we started given we're talking about murakami of all people yep our topic is haruki murakami which i'll probably name the episode so if, if you don't know that after clicking on it we're telling you now yeah uh, wow so so given that we're going into a new format um i kind of don't know where to start here dude um what do you what do you think yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. This is going to be a trailblazing episode because uh, for those who maybe missed the last episode and have missed the stuff we've posted online announcing this, our new format is focused upon creativity. So we decided when we went with the monthly format that we were going to use the time that we had not only to help us promote more um, like posts on the podcast, I mean, uh, posts on the podcast website more and on social media a little bit more. But also use that time to pick a subject, um, musician, writer, whatever we choose that um, we're to spend that month studying the creativity of that person, which would involve obviously um, going into their work and stuff like that, but also reading interviews with them and trying to figure out kind of how their brain works and then coming in here and sharing with each other what we learned. So format wise. I don't know. We're going to figure it out. So stick with us. If this one's a little rough, we will dial it in. We're smart people. Uh, let me ask you this, because I, I think this to me is the, the more fascinating thing. It, it, not just the, the fact that we're switching formats, but I, I personally know why I wanted to use Murakami as the subject for the first podcast. But I'm really curious as to, or new podcast with a new format, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but why are your reasons? I think I'm just happy to talk about Murakami anytime at any place <laughs> there's just certain people that are in my zone where i'm like you want to talk about that let's talk about that <laughs> what was yeah, your reason basically my reasons are pretty personal when it comes to uh murakami um i discovered murakami a long time ago by accident um or i'm a huge fan of kafka and so uh, you know when i saw his book kafka on the shore i was really intrigued as to what it might be so i picked it up uh, this was back in the early 2000s, so um, I've I've known of Murakami's existence for quite some time um, because of that. Kafka on the Shore is one heck of an introduction into Murakami, uh, given that the story takes place um, in two completely different storylines that cross paths, kind of. Um, so the odd chapters are one uh, story, and the even chapters are another story. Um, 
And for me, it was it was a very interesting read because it was so different from anything that I'd seen, especially from Japanese authors. Um, and so that was kind of my my dive into the world of Murakami. Um, since then, I've I've grown a very weird admiration and respect for Murakami because he started very late in life as a writer. Um, even though mo- both of his parents were in literature, uh, he really didn't start writing, or in his words, he really didn't start creating anything until he was 29 when he was, you know, at a, he was running a jazz club at the time and not really doing anything artistic. So that's why I chose Murakami. Um, for me, he's kind of a, 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 an inspiration, um, you know, kind of a, a very clear indicator that it's never too late in life to, to find what you love much less pursue what you love and his success is a, a a very inspiring thing to me yeah he said several times that it happened to him while he was at a baseball game just yeah. suddenly occurred to him i can write a novel i mean that that almost seems like something otherworldly when you tell a story like that so it's kind of appropriate <laughs> considering some of his stories um also interesting is uh i have not read kafka on the shore but uh, I did read Hard Boil Wonderland and the End of the World, and that is two stories staggered chapter by chapter as well. You know what's interesting is I think um, we've had brief discussions about Murakami before, but I think we've read completely different works from Murakami, so this conversation should be really interesting. <laughs> yeah, for example, um, so Hard Boil Wonderland at the End of the World is the third of his books that I've read and the most recent one. It's actually the one that I finished yesterday. Um, and the two books that I read before that were Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which I've read several times. It's one of my favorite novels mm-hmm. and, um, and colorless Suku Tazaki and his years of pilgrimage. Um, what I found interesting about Harboil Wonderland, which I'm curious considering the books that you've read, um, the two books that I started with, um, Wind Up Bird and Suzuku were both told in third person, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hardboiled Wonderland is told in first person. And in some of the interviews I read of him, apparently up until recently, he always wrote in first person. Um, what books did you read and what um, were they in first or third? or? They kind of jump around. I mean, I've read Wind Up Bird Chronicles as well. Um, 1Q84 was the, the latest one I read. Um, and there's there's that's mostly first person with a little bit of third omniscient and like um i forget that there's there's one other kind um uh, I, I don't know but the, the the perspective is mostly first person especially in the very beginning when he's kind of going through um basically this woman uh who is who ends up being an assassin per se um i i i'm sorry i forgot to say that i i'm going to try as best i can not to put spoilers for the plots of these books into our discussions um but it seems like as he's gotten later on i think 1Q84 is one of his latest books and 1Q84 definitely has a a a, a much more I don't know. For for me, it feels much more chaotic um, than Kafka on the Shore. Uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicles was an interesting story in and of itself, just because it was. I, that's a very strange one for me too. But that's, I think that's the only one that we've read in common. Um, but One Q eighty four definitely starts in first person. I haven't finished it yet. I'm I'm towards the very very end of it, but it jumps around a little bit. It's also worth saying it's enormously long. Yeah, it is monstrous. It's over over a thousand <laughs> so, pages, correct? 
Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's a fight, um, and I, you know, obviously given the amount of time that I have, um, it, and especially given how difficult Murakami is just as an author in general, um, it's easy to miss things, um, and I guess that's one of my recommend, recommendations for anyone who ends up actually reading Murakami is that you kind of have to give him pieces of time and definitely big pieces of your brain uh, in order to keep stories straight keeps character straight and keep motivation straight so um you know 1q84 is definitely a great example of why it's necessary to read him in large chunks yeah uh, in my experience with um murakami and with reading interviews with him and um, articles written about him as well uh, a lot of people have accused him of being repetitive in his themes his characters um for example the main character's name in norwegian wood is toru mm -hmm. The main character's yeah. name in Wind Up Bird Chronicles is Toru. They are not the same Toru. <laughs> so yeah. um, a lot of the male characters have a, a very similar feel to them, but you need to give them a large percentage of your brain. A lot of the magic happens in the subtleties. Um, sure. Uh, for example, the difference between um, Tezuku and Toru. They're both, um, people would say that they're both, kind of the same character but they the way that they deal with life is completely opposite um, one of them is very much reticent um, to change and um, oblivious to uh, his own emotional core and the other one is so eager to do anything to change his life and that sure. might seem like a subtle difference but it makes them very different people and actually as a matter of fact if I can find it right now there's a really good quote that he had in an interview um, with the Paris Review about mm -hmm. people talking about um, why his characters are so similar and um, that they're similar to him, actually. And he said, please think about it this way. I have a twin brother. And when I was two years old, one of us, the other one, was kidnapped. He was brought to a faraway place, and we haven't seen each other since. I think my protagonist is him. A part of myself, but not me. And we haven't seen each other for a long time. It's a kind of alternate form of myself. In terms of DNA, we are the same, but our environment has been different, so our way of thinking would be different. Which, in a lot of weird ways, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's art mimicking reality or vice versa, but quite a few of his books jump tenses like that, too. Um, like, I remember when I first... Norwegian, Norwegian Wood was, I think, the, the second piece of Murakami that I ended up reading and there's there's that you know basically a good chunk of it happens in flashback um and so there's 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 definitely a part of that 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 strikes that chord like he's looking for parts of himself in his past um and fabricating parts of past that he needed to become the person that he is now and I think that's kind of fascinating in and of itself and not to be the quote guy but you walked me right into another one I li <laughs> literally before we started this um this recording I was watching a short BBC documentary on him. Um, it's called A Wild uh, Sheep Chase in Search of Haruki Murakami. Um, it, I guess it was part of a TV show that is still on the air called Imagine. And he says, my quest is inside myself. It's not outside. I'm looking for something in my mind. Um, something sincerely, eagerly. I don't think it's a religious thing. Sometimes I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know something is there and I want to find out what it is but I don't know what it is until I've found it. So that is the reason why I write stories. Stories are a maze, a labyrinth. So if I can't find a way through the maze, if I can't tell stories, then I can't find anything at all. And I, I can see that. 
it's it's like he's 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 taking himself and looking at himself from three steps to the left and then the next time three steps to the right um except this time he lives in a different city or something always changing the parameters but still investigating the same thing yeah there's you know the part for me is fascinating um and maybe it's just because of where i am in my life and my my examinations like you know the toro in norwegian wood really strikes a chord with me just because he's my age and he's starting to feel the same feelings of of nostalgia that i feel in in my current age and so i think for me i i identify with with that that toru more um but I feel more so than steps to the left and step to, steps to the right. For me, what I de- identify with when it comes to Murakami is the steps backwards, you know, and how he reimagines the world that he, he, he came from. And I think it's really fascinating to see that there's almost like a childlike sense of wonder um, with an adult sense of, of gravity and darkness. Um, because, you know, if, you've, if, 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 if you read Murakami enough, you'll start to see some lavish dream sequences, some very, very bizarre, um, you know, almost fantasy-like environments. But you'll also see some very visceral things like abuse and sex um, as running themes in a lot of his stories as well. Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is Norwegian Wood, at least as far as you know, it's his most realistic novel. Am I correct? Yeah, it seems pretty grounded in reality. Um, I, it's one of his earlier ones, isn't it? How how early on is it? Do you know? It's uh, 1987, I believe, is when he wrote it in Japanese. Gotcha. Okay. So it's fairly early. He has there's two novels that he wrote at the beginning. Um, I can look at his synopsis right now. He wrote two novels at the beginning that are available in Japan that he will not release to the west the rest of the world because he doesn't believe that they are his style, his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just him learning how to write. One of them yeah. is called Pinball something or other. Yeah, it was part of a trilogy, wasn't it? The the three of them. Yeah, I'm not I'm not completely positive. Uh, let's see, it's uh, "Hear the Wind Sing," "Pinball 1973." Mm-hmm. No, it's just two. The first book that he accepts as his style is "Wild Sheep Chase." Gotcha. Which is uh, 1982. So, um, mm-hmm. actually, "Hardboiled Wonderland," which is the one I read, would be his second novel in his voice, and then "Norwegian mm-hmm. Wood" comes after that. Gotcha. Okay. He's an interesting fellow for both of us in the sense that, um, you know, I think I think you and I come from very different literary backgrounds when it comes to what we naturally gravitated towards. Um, and I think that, strangely, Murakami hits both of our notes very, very distinctly. I remember, you know, reading quite a few things on him saying that, you know, in his pantheon of, of writers, there's, you know, Kafka, uh, Vonnegut, Dostoevsky, um, Kerouac. Raymond Chandler. Yeah, Chandler. So it's weird how 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 it's he's basically who the two of us would have been if the two of us were merged into one person, um, <laughs> made Japanese and grew up in the '60s, essentially. And I think that to some degree, his influence really shows up in um, for me for Hardboiled Wonderland. I can I don't know if it's just because the the title has hardboiled in it, but I mm-hmm. can feel the Raymond Chandler in it, and the first uh, person yeah. helps with that as well. Because sure. most of those hard-boiled detective novels were told in first person. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I don't know about for you. I didn't. I don't feel like he really hit his voice till he started doing third person. Uh, to a certain extent, I think that there are there is there's a certain defiance in one Q eighty four from the main character, or at least the the introduction of the main character, um, or the prime one of the primary protagonists. It's it's hard to explain unless you actually read that book. Um, but there's a sense of of defiance, almost like a a a moment in which 
he realizes that his voice is very defined and he no longer cares. So his story or his his um, narrative becomes much simpler and much more about noticing the details in the world. And I think that's kind of a fascinating thing when you stop looking inward and you start looking outward and you start noticing the little things um, from the perspective of a man who would notice and write little things. It's very, very strange. Yeah, I think there's um there's a certain I found Hard Boiled Wonderland to be a strange book. I mean, it's all for those who don't know. Let me cover three things real quick that we probably should have said earlier. If you, <laughs> if you don't know what first person is, those are books that talk in I. It's from the point of view of the character. Third person is when they t- when you're talking about the character as if you're observing them. He went there. Toru did this. Um, second of mm-hmm. all, uh, his style of writing is con- is often called magic realism. Um, it's kind mm-hmm. of unique for him to be called magic realism because magic realism is usually associated with um, South American writers. Um, it's a it's a more of a, a Latin trend. It's not very common as far as I know in Asian and even in other cultures as well. Well, which is which is why he actually got a lot of criticism early on from the Japanese literary establishment, right? Like he, he was criticized for not being Japanese enough, which is interesting. And also, when you if you read enough about his um, his life, and he talks about growing up in the fifties and what Japan was like, and the perception of Japan, that he spent a good percentage of his life trying not to be Japanese, mm-hmm. which is why he became so fascinated with jazz. Yeah, and and it's funny to to if you look at his biography and see some of his his interviews, it's it's funny to see the transition that that the the Japanese literary world makes in eventually coming to accept him, and not just accept him, but to to tout him as one of the best writers to come out of Japan. And I do think that um, it's easier for us to see how Japanese his novels can be than maybe it was for the people who are from Japan, because there are certain sure. things that they take for granted that. When we read them, you and I have talked about this before. There are certain things that happen in his novels that uh, at we as American write, readers, we have to interpret and realize that what we're seeing happen there might not be a strange thing, that it may be normal for another culture. Like Toru in Wind Up Bird Chronicles is um, the beginning of the book. He's doing a considerable amount of housework, ironing shirts and cooking food. And at least from what I've read, having not actually lived in Japan, I've been told that there's still very much a, a uh, there's roles for what men do and what's um, what women do. This is men's work. This is women's work. So by having his character do that, um, he's emasculating him. And I was unaware of that until this, I had read something about the book. And there's a strange things that actually that happens in uh, the Tezuku book, uh, book, um, that I'm not sure if it has anything to do with Japanese culture or not, or if it's supposed to be weird. He's on a date with a woman, and they're mm-hmm. on their f- they're on their fourth date. They've already had sex, yet he contacts her through email. Mm-hmm. I found that very strange, um, but I had to write down. I don't know if that's his culture or not. So I, th- I think that maybe that's what the Japanese audiences started to see was, oh no, he is representing Japanese culture. He's just representing his. Japanese culture and not the stereotypical Japanese culture. Yeah, which is, but there are still parts of that Japanese culture, um, and I don't know if it's intentional. I'm sure it's intentional, at least on 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 some level with Murakami, but 
like uh, in Wind Up Bird Chronicle, for for example, the the house, that one house, um, where the the stray cats and and that mysterious that mysterious dude end up lingering. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense of oldness to the myth of it. There's a you know there's a sense of omen, um, and I think that that there's a very a deeper, uh, more rooted in history sense of Jap- Japan. I don't know much about Japanese culture. I mean, the only thing I know is what I know from friends and what I what I pick up from you know history books and or um, you know Japanese authors I've read. But there's much more a sense of fable, a sense of, of 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 omen and prophecy and things like that. So I think that it trickles in, but it has a weird modern twist on it. You know, right. I think there's, there's almost a disdain for it, while still, while while the fascination still exists for it simultaneously, and it's a very interesting dichotomy to have two existing at the same time. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's very much, um, there's a lot of American pop culture in his books. That's mm-hmm. one of the things he has been criticized for, and there there are times when you read it, and you may be completely unaware that it's taking place in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, because he's not talking about what you would expect him to be talking about but i think um maybe that that's also has a lot to do with time um i (laughs) my perception is that japanese culture is a lot more like american culture now so what he's talking about is a reality for many japanese people Mm -hmm. it's 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 interesting when somebody becomes the voice of their nation in a sense where they're like this is our novelist or at least this is the, who the world thinks is our novelist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how that affects you as a writer. I, I think that that's got to put in a, a considerable amount of pressure on you. Well, I think to a certain extent, too. And I think uh, a guy like Murakami, I, I think he revels in something like that. Um, because I, I, I get the sense that there he, he, he fits the plight of a lot of younger Japanese in the sense that, you know, there's this Western world that's creeping in. There's the Western influence in social media and the Internet. Um, but there's also a very old world sense of Japan that still creeps into everything, and they they uh, uh, in, in a lot of senses they're they're diametrically opposing. So, um, how do you remain true to your culture and your history while still evolving with the culture of the world? And I think that Murakami touts that line in almost every single book of his, um, and I think it's it's fascinating. Like if you look at you know some of the things that I've I've read in interviews and things with Murakami, he very much encourages people to translate his work, and he's a big part. He takes he takes you know um, um, a, a pretty active role in helping with the translations, and I think that's pretty cool. And it also shows that he's he's trying to learn what influences um, in the Western world can make his books more clear, and how those themes are are, are 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 how those themes come across in the translations. And I think that's really interesting. And and one of the reasons that he is such a big fan of having his work translated is because he himself is a literature literature translator. He's mm-hmm. translated over 20 books into Japanese yeah. from, from Capote to Raymond Chandler to Raymond Carver to he did um, The Great Gatsby in Japanese, yep. he, John Irving, Ursula K. Le Guin. He's done Catcher in the Rye, even Shel Silverstein. He's across the board. Um, mm-hmm. So I, and we've talked actually on the show before about the amount of respect both of us have for people who do translations. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's very interesting to read someone who is such an active translator to read their actual own work. Sure. uh, I think it creates an intimacy with language that maybe is unique. Um, I know that uh, Nabokov had the same thing. Nabokov, Mm -hmm. because because of his um, translation skills and his knowledge of so many different languages, it affected his English. 
and sure to a beautiful degree do you think that that affects you i mean you i'm i'm not bilingual you are well it it definitely does i mean i i i hear things translated from vietnamese for example um and they end up sounding very very different in translation you know um i dated um an argentinian for a very long time who read pablo neruda in the original spanish and she would read pablo neruda side by side with the english version of me and tell me how how woefully inadequate um it was in 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 bringing the 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 cultural I mean, liter- liter- the, the literal translations were pretty accurate, according to her, but you just couldn't get the sense of, of culture or history to come across properly when it was translated. So, I mean, I, not only am I curious to see, you know, some of my favorite authors, for example, I'm not even sure if they're my favorite authors because most of their work I've read in the translation and not in the original, like Kafka or Dostoevsky, for example. I may hate Dostoevsky in Russian, in Russian but, you know, in his American um, translations, I've liked them quite a bit. You know, if you look at the other side of that, like, I'm really curious to see, you know, if you look at some of our heroes, for example, like Carver or Salinger, I mean, given that Murakami is one of our favorite novelist from J- Japanese translated into English, I'm very curious as to what his translations of, of Salinger would be back into Japanese. You know, that would that'd be fascinating. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about this um, because I, I enjoy the, the translations. Obviously, we both were fans of his books, but I wonder if there's more music to his language that we're unaware of. Oh, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. <laughs> uh, and you know, but I, but but in a lot of the things that he said, though, he said that he actually did like quite a few of the translations. So because he, you know, he's he's an English speaker and he's lived in he lived in the United States for a bit too. What's actually also interesting is he works with I think three or four different translators, mm-hmm. and uh, yep. basically it's first come first serve. And he says that they each have a different style, and they mm-hmm. just seem to gravitate towards the books that they can translate well. Um, there's also a very interesting thing that relates to this in uh, the Sukuru, Sukuru book. Um, he, sa- he says his name means to build. But when his father was choosing his name, he had to choose between one kanji and the other kanji. One that meant to build but insinuated creation. And another one that simply meant to build. It was the simpler huh. form. And his name is the simpler form. And I don't. I, I have a feeling that um, in order for that to work in the book, that the part of the explanation that I'm talking about was probably added to the book, because huh. it was. It happened. I would assume it happened naturally that people would say all. All you would have to say in Japanese is put the put the correct kanji and then say he could have named him this and put the other kanji, because you don't need to explain that to a Japanese audience, right? It's their alphabet. <laughs> True. That might explain why 1Q84 has a weird starkness to it that I didn't quite feel um, in in the other books. Like if you compare um, Wind Up Bird Chronicles and 1Q84 side by side, they're such different books. They're such different voices. It's it's um, it almost feels like it's not written by the same author. It's very strange. The way that you describe um, 1Q84 sounds like Hard Boiled Wonderland. Um, it's it's a very different book. Very different book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Give us just kind of a a two paragraph rundown of what what one Q eighty four is. Uh wow, one Q eighty four is is man. How do I describe it? It's it, you know you know what's weird is that it has kind of the feel of of the modern Marvel stuff that's on Netflix. Um, there's a distinct darkness to it uh, because it deals with themes of abuse, um, like severe abuse, basically. Um, it deals with cults. It deals with you know um, like. like 
child child sexual abuse. Um, and it's a pretty tough book to read, not just in its length, but in its themes and style as well. Um, it's one that I definitely am fighting my way through, um, just because there are times where where I find it almost difficult to 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 read without visualizing the horror um, that's in some of the moments. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, though. There's there there's there's the hero side of that too, in the sense that there's there's a very strong sense of justice justice and vengeance in it. Um, I'm trying to be vague while still being specific. Um, there's a very strong sense of justice in it that really keeps you um, enraptured with the main character and the main storyline. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very brutal piece of writing, um, and it, it definitely uh, attacks some very harsh and dark themes as well. Uh, Hardboiled Wonderland is just, I would say, almost the opposite of that. Um, it's it's huh. it's so it's <laughs> so different. It's so different from the two that I've read because the other two that I've read because. Um, colorless and um wind up bird are very much um grounded in mundane lives normal lives normal things happening um and just kind of digging into the weirdness of that and having strange fantastical things happen to the characters more so in wind up bird there's not a lot of fantastical stuff that happens in colorless but there is a lot of digging into the mystery of the self um whereas Hardboiled Wonderland is no reality at all. Uh, not not our reality, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, in some ways, when I started reading it, th- once again, this alternates between two narrators. Um, one is one for one chapter, and one is the other. Um, one is more has more of a science fiction feel to it, akin to um, Neuromancer mm-hmm. um, by William Gibson, and then the other one is like a fantasy like the person living in another world who has to detach their shadow from themselves um just very much not what i know of murakami at all and once again i said it like i said they're both in first person and i'm used to reading him in third so picking up that book for me was like whoa apparently i know nothing about him as an author i only know of one little pocket of his style um so it's interesting the the range that for an author that we've said already is accused of repeating himself it seems like he has a pretty wide array of writing from fantasy to um i guess you would say the other stuff is in the middle to the very extreme like you're talking about yeah 1q84 is very visceral um to me it it almost feels a lot like um you know a, a book a, a series of books that we've talked about it feels almost like the new york trilogy um, you know, in that there's there's a, a sense of, of mystery and, and crime solving and all that kind of stuff there too as well. Um, you know, Wind Up for me, it's funny because I know that Wind Up is about, in a certain kind of way, about monotony and boredom. And it's funny because when I was reading Wind Up for the first time, I found myself to be so much more easily bored by the world. <laughs> and, I, and I felt like I started to, to watch things more closely. Like I remember the first time I'd ever watched a centipede walk. Um, was after was during the the time in which I was reading one uh, you know uh, wind up because I was actually curious to see how the the feet moved I, I noticed much more of the small world so it was really interesting to see how how much of an influence a book that I liked that much had on my my perception of the world around me it's really cool and I definitely think that um, if you haven't read Murakami a lot of this stuff is going to sound very strange um, <laughs> sure. 
Because it is strange. There is a lot of strange things. We have a, a man who climbs down. I'm not going to tell you what books these things happen in, so that'll be my way of avoiding spoilers. You have a man nice. who climbs down into a well and sits in a well uh, until he comes to some kind of realization, starving and dehydrating himself in the bottom of a well. Uh, you have, a, as I said, a man who detaches himself from his shadow and reads skulls for dreams. Uh, you have an assassin um, who is going around and taking vengeance on um, strangers based on a relationship with another woman, woman to woman. Um, um, you have that same guy who goes down to wells also sits around at donut shops and stares at people for days at a time. Um, I mean, you <laughs> you got a little bit of everything. You have you have a guy who who watched his his girlfriend commit or didn't watch, but found out that his girlfriend committed suicide, and is basically watching his entire life in flashback. Um, so I mean, it, it, it's it's funny to to hear the criticisms on on, on Murakami um, because yeah, I, I don't I don't see the whole him repeating himself thing. I mean, sure, the the idea of looking into yourself and looking into the past is a repetitive theme, but the the journey that he takes every time is so incredibly different um, that I I'm not even quite sure how how you can even call them um, you know uh, how how you can even say that he's got one beat. I think I think the thing that's beneficial for me too as a as a reader when it comes to Murakami is that I read his works far enough apart. And I think so because of that, I don't think I, I really saw the similarities as clearly as if I had read two or three back to back. So that might have benefited me as well. I can tell you that I read Colorless and uh, Hardboiled Wonderland back to back. Literally ended one, started the other one the next day. And those two books are nothing alike. They're also uh, written 30 years apart, 30, 40 years apart. Sure. Um, yeah. So I can't imagine. I, I honestly, I think sometimes when people make these criticisms, all they've done is read the two-paragraph blurb on the back of the book and decided Jeez. this sounds like the other book. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, from from the descriptions that I've seen, like because you know, I, when we were doing, or at least when I was doing my research uh, on Murakami, um, I read quite a bit of the criticisms on him, and yeah, it really feels like that. Um, and it also really feels like the people who read his work didn't really take their time. Um, and I think Murakami requires that time. Like Wind Up Bird Chronicles, for example, it's it's a book of small details. And 1Q84 is kind of like that too, but in, in, with a much faster speed. Um, but Wind Up Bird Chronicles to me was was much more about the small world and, and the intricacies of, of monotony. Um, and so I, I think that, that if you're not in the right mindset to read it, I think you miss a lot of things that become very important to why that book is so meaningful and so beautiful. And, and don't get us wrong, there are things that he does repeat as themes, um, but I don't think it's to his detriment. There are always women in his books, and I don't mean as characters. I mean there are always women that he's either sleeping with or wanting to sleep with, and they, they kind of function in all of the books that I've read and the books that I've read about. They always function as messengers. In some way, they're all conveying some kind of message yeah. to the main character. They all have a, they, they, almost like the women in his books are at once very realistic women because um, of the sexual relationship, but then at the same time also completely symbols of something else. They represent something inside of himself. Oh man, I want you to read 1Q84 because I think 1Q84 is the first time, at least, you know, I, I and I, Murakami is one of those authors where I feel like I'll just never read enough of him. Um, like I only have um, five under, no, four under my belt. 
Um, but I feel like 1Q84 is the almost the opposite of that in a way, in the sense that now the the woman is the 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 character that is promiscuous, and and the the the, the men are the symbols. It's really interesting. And that's that's interesting because in one of the interviews, I don't remember which one it was, he says that he does that to himself purposely. That he looks mm. at the last book and he goes, what did I do? And then he tries to figure out how to turn it on its head. So <laughs> perhaps that 1Q84 is a res- direct response to the fact that he's always done what I'm talking about. I mean, Yeah, it, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, It's a very purposeful thing on his part. Actually, I, I mean, I have trouble believing that nothing... I have trouble believing he doesn't do everything on purpose. There's there's a sure. There's a calculatedness to Murakami that I think is rare in modern literature. Sure, I, like I, I'm I'm really curious to, you know, and there's there's been various things on his writing process, um, and and of course, you know, from project to project, he said that he pro- he approaches them a little differently. But I'm very curious to see what his preparation is um for writing a novel you know like how because some of these some of these stories are so intricately woven like 1q84 for example is two completely i mean not just two but there there are a number of storylines but there are two very clear storylines that are completely different and sooner or later he's going to weave them together somehow and i'm very curious as to how that's going to happen i have a few quotes about that actually this is this this stuff is from the paris review article two we're going to link everything that we mentioned in the show notes Um, When I start to write, I don't have any plan at all. I just wait for the story to come. I don't choose what kind of story it is or what's going to happen. I just wait. And then he goes into further detail to say that um, he basically he he latches onto images and then he latches onto other images. And then as the images come clear to him, like, for example, I would assume with Wind Up Bird Chronicle, um, the bird the wind up bird was a, it was a symbol that came to him. So he collects these symbols and then he looks at the symbols that he has and he goes, how do these work together? But he says that he has Mm. no idea how any of his books end or what's going to happen. And that the reason he writes them is to find out what's going to happen. Interesting. Like I wonder, for example, in, in wind up, if, if when he started writing wind up, if he ever thought he'd find the cat, I don't know. Yeah. I think in some ways, to me, um, it reminds me of that the Blake Snyder book, Save the Cat, which has become mm-hmm. like the, I guess you would say the Bible for Hollywood. Every single movie that's been released in the past 10 years is based on this exact formula. Um, and it's not just Save the Cat. Save the Cat is one of the examples in the book. But it's, it's basically, oh, on, on page blah, blah, blah of the script, this should happen. On page blah, blah, blah of the script, this should happen. And they all have the sure. same format now. And the first thing that they say is to have the main character save something at the beginning of the plot because it gives you an instant association with that character. The, you, the audience automatically bonds with that character, whether they're looking for a dollar bill in their pocket that they can't find or something. And his example is save the cat. And when I read Wind Up Bird and the first thing I read was he's looking for a cat, that's what I mm-hmm. thought of. And I don't think that's an accident. Yeah, but I also think that there's there's almost a sense of defiance in the sense that he got it. That's a spoiler, but you know, I, I'm I'm throwing one in there just because it's important to our, our our current discussion. But just not being able to find the cat, um, I, I think is kind of a sense. There's a weird sense of defiance to. That. Oh, absolutely. I definitely think in in a way it's a middle finger to Blake Snyder, who's dead, so it's okay. Um, sure. 
but uh, <laughs> and I and I don't think your spoiler is a bad spoiler because it honestly doesn't tell you anything about the book knowing that. Oh, true. Yeah, I mean that's 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 as far a bookend as you can get. That tells you absolutely nothing about what happens in the story. <laughs> and in the long run, it's not really significant at all to the story. That's, sure, that's like the conclusion of a very, 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 very minor storyline that may have symbolic meaning. But the funny thing, though, is that it's kind of the catalyst for the entire story. So in a weird kind of way, it is really important to the story. It's just not important to the narrative of Toro's journey after that. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's like um what a Alfred Hitchcock used to call a MacGuffin. And that would be mm-hmm. um, anything that you use to propel the story forward, but in the context of the story means nothing. Um, for example, you remember the movie Psycho Lamb, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember why she's at the Bates Motel? No, I do not. That's the MacGuffin. She stole money from her job, and she's on the run from oh, the police. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh-huh. the money uh-huh. is the MacGuffin. But once she once she's there, you never hear about it again. That's why the cop comes to the motel later, because he's not uh-huh. he doesn't know that uh, Norman Bates is killing people. He's looking for the woman and the money. Ah, uh, that's right. That's why he's there. But it means nothing. That's, that story has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with mm-hmm. theft. It's a MacGuffin. Sure. And uh, in every Hitchcock film, he used that technique. I believe every. I'm overstepping my bounds. But <laughs> uh, I, I, the cat in this is definitely a MacGuffin. It's, it's, yeah, sure. He, will, he would not find, um, I wish I could remember the, the, the girl who lives next door's name. Um, but he would not find her. Is it Kay? I think it's Kay. No, Kay's his wife. No, okay, so, nah, his wife, wasn't it Kum, Kum, nah, Kumiko? Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Kasaraka. I think it might have been May. Was it May? May, yeah, there you go. See, guys, we did you know, not you prep know for this. <laughs> that, no, I mean, you know what? It's not that we didn't prep for it. I mean, I prepped like crazy for this. The problem is that the names are Japanese, so they don't roll off the tongue very easily, so they're harder for me to remember. Like, even with... Um, you know, when I was reading Wind Up, uh, it was one of my first real experiences um, with reading a Japanese author of of, of that type. Um, and even into 1Q84, for example, I almost have to make notes for myself on character names because I get lost in them. Right. That's um, and I'll probably cut all the times earlier when I say Sukuru wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah, uh, I, was, I was wondering about that. <laughs> I, I, just to save you guys the ears, but just let you know that. Almost every time, except for the time that I just said it right now, I screwed it up at least once. Sure. Um, and it's just these are ways that our tongues aren't used to moving. And it's also, yeah, like you said, uh, it becomes because when something's foreign, like a name is foreign to you, it's hard for something to seem unreasonable. Like, of course, if I said, what was what was his name? Chad, Brad. Those are the only two things you're going to come up with. You're never sure. you're never gonna say what was his name Chad Zad, um, mm-hmm. Flad, because you know because it's your culture you know that um, those just aren't reasonable uh, possibilities. Sure, but when you yeah. don't when you don't know the language, everything is a possibility. <laughs> You know what's funny though is I think because of that, I, I uh, more so with Bird Wind Up Bird Chronicles than any of the other Murakami I've read, it makes me attach myself to the characters more. Um, in the sense that I don't necessarily try to remember them by their names, um, but I try to remember them by their voices and their actions. Um, so I actually think, in a weird kind of way, it made me read the book um, with a, a, a different perspective than I would normally read something like I don't know, um, you know, something American written. Uh, that is. 
and I'll tell you, um, the colorless book, he, every character in that book, well, not every character, the, the main character and four other characters, um, all have multiple names. And oh, they have wow. names. They obviously they have first name and last name, but then they have nicknames and he interchangeably uses them. So at, at times, uh, I, I never got confused by it because I know who he was talking about the way he was talking about them, but it did mm-hmm. make me not remember either of their names. So when I was writing my notes down for, um, for the book, I'd have to go and look and say, okay, what was that girl's name? Mm-hmm. And, oh, he calls her Eri, E-R-I here, but her name is really, and then she has another name. And the, and the reason for that is um, the his reason his name is colorless um, Zuku um, Tazaki is because he has four friends um, from college. Is it college? High school. Four friends in high school. And they're the five of them are friends, like a hand, you know, fingers on the hand. Um, but the other four, their last names all have a pun of some kind of color. Mm. Like one one um, is like black, one is white, um, one is red, and I think the other one is blue. So there's a, there's a pun of color in all their names except for his. So that's why he is colorless. So the nicknames that he's given them are the nicknames of the color. So uh, I, th- I think it's something that's very simple for a Japanese reader. But for me, I'm like, whoa, two words I don't know that I have to remember associated with this person. Yeah, and I remember I, I actually – I've always had the intention of reading A Wild Cheap Chase. Um, but I remember when I first cracked it open uh, – I, 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 I want to get this right. Um, but I remember the narrator not having a name, and that was really difficult for me. Um, you've, you've read that one, right? You've read A Wild Cheap Chase? No, no, I haven't. Okay, because I, I had it at some point, and I, it was one of those, like, I know it'll be brilliant once I dive into it, but I haven't really given it the chance that it's deserved, kind of like, um, um, I hate to draw the analogy, but it makes perfect sense, like Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't, I, I, you have to watch more than four or five episodes to start seeing the genius in, in the, 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 the intricacies, um, and I feel like I did not give a wild cheap chase enough time to, to capture me. So I think I read the first like 30 pages and said, oh, I definitely did need to spend way more time with this book in order to get it. It's kind of like with a, a similar thing that I say with people with Game of Thrones. Almost anybody that tells me they're like, nah. I'm like, if you can get past the first like four episodes, you'll be in. Yeah. But the first four episodes, it's rough because there's so many names. You know, it's like Tywin and Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, I'm never going to get those confused now. But when yeah. I started watching that, I'm all, wait, what's his name? Sure. Who's that guy? Who's, wait, who's related to that? And it's that same, that same thing. I feel like, um, and I think that a lot of things that are brilliant end up being like that, where it's like, yep, because it requires an investment of the viewer or the reader. But once you've made that investment, they've tied you into the story in a way that they couldn't if they hadn't forced you to make that investment. Sure. Sure, that that definitely makes sense, and I feel like Murakami, like One Q eighty four, for example. I mean, honestly, of the the Murakami that I've read, One Q eighty four is probably my least favorite. And it's not to say that it isn't great. Um, it's just it required a level of commitment from me that I don't think I gave enough of. Um, and so because of that, I don't think I liked it as much as I could have if I had gone into it with more attention and more care. Um, like I remember when I first read, read um, Wind Up Bird Chronicles. Um, it, that was it was it was a few years after I'd read um, Kafka on the Shore, so I already knew that I liked Murakami. So when I read Wind Up Bird Chronicles, I had 
I'd gotten so much um, in the way of uh, people recommending it to me. I'd read a few things of praise on it and a few, you know, um, uh, constructive criticisms on it and things like that. So I went into it knowing that I needed to spend a certain amount of time and care in order to read it properly. And so because of that, the first time I read it, I think I got so much more out of it because of my my preparation for reading it. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a certain level of commitment and also of being present that's required honestly i do that with every book that i read if i don't like a book i never assume it's the author's fault i always Mm -hmm. assume it's me Mm -hmm. don quixote is considered one of the greatest books ever read i read it i read the long version the full version the the version that has both um both sections even the one he went back and rewrote which is technically a sequel it was, you know, over thousands, uh, over 1,500 pages or something like that. I read it. It took me like two years. Uh, <laughs> and I was not reading it every day. I'm not that bad of a reader. But uh, I hated it. I thought it was boring. I didn't like it at all. And I'm completely convinced it's number one. I took too long to read it. And I wasn't paying attention the way I should have. And I think I was in the wrong mood, too. Um, mm-hmm. It's a funny book. But just like anything. If you watch something that's funny and you're not in a mood to laugh, it's mm-hmm. not funny. Sure. So, so all the violence that happens in Don Quixote is supposed to be slapstick. But mm-hmm. if you're reading it as serious violence, all you're thinking is this is awful. And I did a lot of that when I was reading that book. So I imagine some point later in my life I'm going to read it again and hopefully appreciate it. And uh, I feel that way about Hard Boiled Wonderland at the End of the World. It's a good book. Um I definitely think I cruised through the last quarter of it because I just wanted to get it done with um, because I wasn't that into it because it wasn't what I wanted from Murakami. Sure. It didn't have that that mix of the mundane life with the fantastical, Um, which is funny because uh, Colorless has like no fantastical elements. It's just pretty much the mundane. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that more. Sure. Um. I don't know. It's 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 a mood thing. I think you're definitely right. It's 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 about where you are. When yeah, you, I when agree you with that. It. And we've had that conversation about other books, even even books that we've loved. Um, you know, I'm going through and reading, um, you know, Catcher in the Rye at various ages in your life. Um, you know, I definitely feel like Murakami because his themes are so strong. Um, uh, you you definitely have to be in a certain mindset. Like I I I get the sense that if I had read Wind Up on, B- Wind Up Bird Chronicles at a time in which I was really excited to live life and I was traveling the world and doing all kinds of stuff, I don't think I would have liked that book nearly as much because I would have just hated the boredom of it. You know yeah. what I mean? Same here. So so I definitely agree with that. I think that to some degree it required me to be middle aged um, for me Agreed. to yeah. to relate to Toru uh, and to also be in a strange place where. Um, in some ways, uh, Toru had a huge influence on the main character in the novel that I'm writing because mm-hmm. they had an accidental similarity, and I latched onto that when I was reading that book. So it drew mm-hmm. me into that book even more because I was creating something that was similar, and now here I am reading uh, reading essentially a, a blueprint for that type of character. Sure. It's funny that you say that, too, because I think uh, especially with Toru's character... Um, I think because I'm because there's a sense of 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 lost love there too, but I'm not talking about lost love in the sense that like you know you had your heartbroken or anything, but there's a sense of love degradation um, 
that I think um, I'd felt over the last couple of years towards certain things in my life. And I think that that's part of the reason why I latched onto Toru so strongly in uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicles is that there's definitely a sense of not lost love, but love lost for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a very strong theme that runs through in the entire book. Um, and I think without that particular... You know, and if anyone, you know, very few people have read my poetry, but my poetry while I was reading this book was very similar to that too as well. Um, you know, a sense of, of just not realizing or, or, or understanding why you've lost, you'd lost the passion for certain things. Um, and so that's why that character latched, I latched onto that character, character so strongly as well. And that's, I think that if you're going to say that there's anything that runs through all of Murakami's novels, at least as far as you and I know from the ones we're talking about, it would be a sense of longing and a mm-hmm. sense of, of nostalgic loss. Not yeah. always, it's not a tragic loss. There's always a nostalgia. Even when tragic thing happens, there's still a nostalgic thing for something that will fix it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that never comes, by the way. <laughs> and that that is the beautiful thing about Murakami is you cannot. And I think that comes from him not knowing where his books are going to end. So sure. he's he's not steering the novel in a certain way. So when it steers away, he goes with it. Sure. And at, at first, I would I would think um, for somebody who actually has an idea where his stories end, I think that that's probably a more pure way to write. Yeah, and, but that's got to that's also by the same by the same token though a much more difficult way to write because the the story the story really has no way of finding its own end. Um, well, no, I, I, I take that back. That's exactly how it's supposed to be um, for Murakami. But I think that's tough for, for us as writers um, in general is that, you know, I almost always go into a project knowing where it's going to end. Um, like, you know, if you look at J.K. Rowling, for example, I know that, you know, drawing a, a comparison between J.K. Rowling and Murakami is kind of a stretch. But, you know, in, in interviews with her, she said she knew how the Harry Potter series was going to end before she even wrote the first page. You know, so that's that's interesting. It's interesting to see someone write from such a brave perspective almost in the sense that a book could be 50 pages long or in the case of 1Q84, you know, 1200 pages long. But you, but you never really know that um, going into the project. And I think there's there's a bravery and almost a stupidity to that 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 is that is childlike and kind of amazing apparently stephen king does the same thing he doesn't he doesn't know where his books end um i think that for me that makes a lot of sense even though i haven't done it because i, I talk a lot about characters and we're uh we're going to pull the conversation back into more general terms of creativity um so that those of you who haven't read the books don't feel lost for the whole hour and a half um I think that when you have a character, and I, you, I know you've written enough characters that you've probably experienced this multiple times, there's a point when a character becomes alive. Yeah. And it's it sounds like a fantastical thing that would happen, and we're obviously not talking about um, it becomes a moving person in the room. But it the character becomes so fleshed out, at least in your mind, maybe not on the page yet, but in your mind that you know what a character will do and what a character will not do. You start to under their motivations. You start to understand um, their reasoning. And when you have an idea for an end of a book, you're, what you're trying to do is, at times, fit a square peg into a round hole. Sure. Uh, your character could want to go left, but you really need to go right with him. So you spend a lot of time, at least I have, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out if he's the way he is without ruining who he is and I need him to go here, what is the thing in the middle that makes that happen? 
Sure. You know, oh, the road on the left, it's on fire. Okay, he can't go left, so now he has to go right. Um, whereas if you're writing from following the character and following the story, it's possible that maybe that's even easier. Because, you know, you can always cut out stuff and, and until you find the road. Yeah, but there's. I, I, it's funny because it's it's funny you say that because when, when I write a character, um, I always start from the outside looking in. So I always start um, as though I'm a, a quiet observer in that that character's life. Like I watch them do things. I try to figure out what their motivations are and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, there's a transition in which I go from being an observer to being first person in the character's mind. Um, so even if it's not necessary, for example, I develop elaborate and and specific histories. Um, that that lead to the, the 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 actions or the motivations of that that character, um, and there's there's actually a, a a character that I really really liked um, for a story that I was writing that I ended up scrapping um, the entire project of because I loved the character but I hated I hated where I put him, um, and it's really tif- it was re- actually really difficult for me to write out anything that made sense with who the character had become over time to me. It's really strange. And I think that's, a, um, that's something that maybe isn't talked about as often as it should be. This idea um, things are not glued together. Uh, if something doesn't stick, it doesn't stick, but it doesn't mean you have to throw everything away, right? You sure. Know, you can sit on that character, and then one day the story that that character needs is going to come to you. And, sure. And maybe when that happens, maybe you'll end up writing a book like we're talking about. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think that for me, I try not to stick to any philosophies on writing in general. Uh, I'm open to anything because I think that every project deserves a different approach. Um, and, and I think that going back to Murakami, I really believe that even though he's been accused of not being that, I believe that he's a great embodiment of changing everything up every time he does something. Because mm-hmm. the three books I read, yeah, there's some similarity, enough that I know it's the same author. But I would never say that they're the same book or that I didn't gain something unique from each of them. Agreed completely. And it's funny It's funny that in my older age, I remember at some point in my life, I, I very much cared about um, story over character. Um, and the, the, the characters became more um, milestones within the story than, than being fleshed out people to me. And I think as I've gotten older um, and as I've, I've learned more about people, I've become more of a character person rather than a, a story person. So you're definitely right. Like there are a couple of characters that I have floating around in my head that I wrote stories for that just didn't make sense. So there's, there's, there's almost a waiting room, you know, a, a, a magical bus that's going nowhere where these characters will eventually find their stops in my brain. It's really cool. Yeah, I, I think I've come to the point in my writing where I don't, I don't think that there's anything without character. Yeah, the, the, sure. The character propels everything. Um, but I think that's a di- it's a different style of writing. You know, if you're writing a, I don't know, like a stereotypical, um, the pop the books that are popular now. You know, like Twilight, um, fantasy. I don't mean vampire books, but I mean like popular fantasy um, books that are usually a series. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is very popular right now, or at least it was last year. Um, you know, the, anything like that. Like, I think it's in some ways all inspired by Harry Potter, but it's not all that type of book. But you're looking what you're looking at is books that are about what happens, because um, it's it's pulp. Not to be um, cruel or mm-hmm. anything like that. And pulp is not a bad thing. Raymond Chandler, who is a great author and is one of Murakami's heroes, wrote pulp novels. Um, 
mm-hmm. but it's 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 driven by by story. But the great books that changed my life were about characters, and I wouldn't even. I think sometimes it goes two ways. Either you wouldn't even begin to uh, be able to under explain the plot to someone, or when you do, the plot sounds so simple that it, no one would want to read it. Sure. Like I think that in some degree, if you if you told people, wind up Bird Chronicle, it's about a man who can't find his wife and he can't find his cat. That doesn't sound Worst very amazing. <laughs> yeah. But then when I start throwing other elements in, it sounds completely ridiculous and weird. But the fact is, the book isn't about any of those things. The book is about Toru and about yeah, Toru finding you, himself. Yeah, I, like yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was headed right there. Um, but if you were to te- if you were to describe Toru to me, and um, you were to describe the, the the things that he was going to going through in order to find himself, I'd be I'd be totally captivated by that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, even and yeah, you talk about like oh, the beginning of the book. Well, he cooks a lot of pasta. He listens yep. <laughs> to a, a lot of um, a lot of classical music on the radio, and uh, he irons some shirts. Okay, <laughs> because the book is so much more than what happens, and uh, that's that's always far more interesting to me. And I think it's more genuine. You can that's the magic of Murakami. Murakami can do fantastical things like a um, a woman who commu- communicates to another woman without speaking. Sure. Or um, a man, a man who can uh, turn off the sound in other people's voices. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all things that happen in his books. But he gets away with it. Number one, because he treats those things seriously and he doesn't ex- over-explain them or explain them at all. Um, and number two, because the characters are so genuine and so real that you believe anything. The suspension mm-hmm. of disbelief it's there. Yeah, it's funny with Murakami that that I do that so quickly and and so unquestionably. Um, yeah, after, I, uh, the, there's a character in Wind Up Bird. Um, I think his name is Cinnamon. Cinnamon, definitely. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One, you know the one that the one that can't talk and only uses his hands to speak, but people yeah. for some strange reason completely understand him. I I didn't even question that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I, I didn't. I was like, oh okay, that that makes total sense. <laughs> or the fact that the other woman's a psychic. You don't yeah, even, yeah, totally you, weird. You, you yeah. don't even the, question it. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, uh, so going back to Raymond Chandler, uh, one of the stories that Murakami tells in, in the Paris Review article is about Raymond Chandler, and this relates directly to character. Um, it's talking about when the Big Sleep um, novel by Raymond Chandler, I believe his first actually, was being made into a film in Hollywood. And the director was Howard Hawks. And Howard Hawks read the novel. He was all gung-ho to make this movie. And he's looking at the script. And he's going back to the novel. And he's looking at the script. And he's going back to the novel. And he realizes he has no idea who the killer is. No idea who the killer is. So he calls Raymond Chandler on the phone. And he says, who is the killer? And Raymond Chandler says, I don't care. Huh. Because the book is about what it's about is it's not about the mystery it's not about who murdered who it's not a who done it it's about the character sure and i i loved that and i guess in wind up um it would be someone asking you so did you find the cat <laughs> right or uh what's the deal with the wife 
Yeah, or where'd the wife go? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like, she completely disappears and no one even pays attention to that. <laughs> I, I didn't even notice. Well, I noticed, obviously, because she's not there anymore, but it and didn't even a, really matter. You know, He's obsessing over it, but sure. uh, I don't know. There's there's a lot of... it's there's um, I, What I appreciate about him, too, is there's a lot of things that he leaves undone. Yeah. And it's bothersome at first, but I think it... it it, it creates an impression in the mind um, in the sense that that little, that one little thing, those two little things that are left undone will always be trying to resolve itself somewhere in the back of your brain. Like with, with, um, sure. Um, Sukuru, he's, he wants to know why his friends didn't want to be his friends anymore. He, sure. f- he finds out what that, he finds out the answer to that. I will tell you that, but there's two other things that are mentioned in there that are very strange that get mentioned and never mentioned again, and he never resolved them, and it drove me nuts at the end of the book. I'm like, "What happened to that dude? What was the deal with that dude?" <laughs> and I'll never know, unless for some yep. reason he decides to write a book about that, which he's never done a sequel of any sort. Yeah, I I, I don't think, and I think there's, it, it's it, it with one Q84 because it's such a daunting book, and I found this to be true with the Game of Thrones books too, because I I, I actually ended up reading all of those. Um, there's so much going on that you just learn to prioritize what details are important and you learn to disregard details that don't get brought up again. Um, you know, because that's just kind of the way life is. I mean, you could have a conversation with a person and you remember one or two things, but you probably talked about 10 different things, you know? So I feel like Murakami books are very much like that for me in the sense that there's just so much going on that I just learn to disregard things um, that aren't important to what I consider the plot to be. Um, and sure, that that might be different for everybody, considering how much is in there. There might be a person who's following a completely different storyline or a completely different set of details in a Murakami book. But for me, the story that's important for me as a reader, I hold on to the details that are important to me. For example, in one Q eighty four, you know the, the the main character's name. Let me let me pull it up. I, I'm I, I'm going to butcher it, and I apologize for for anyone who is going to read this and 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 hear me say a Japanese name terribly. Um, Aomame, uh, I believe is her her name, but there are so many intricacies to her character and so many little things that she does that are, you know, affronts to society and and little things that she does that that are are very character defining things for her that I think a person who didn't really care about a strong female protagonist would care about. But I do. I love strong female protagonists. So for me, I remember all of the details that construct her world and her her sense of her, her sense of right and wrong and her 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 narrative plot through the entire story. So for me that that's the story I latch onto and the character that becomes the strongest to me. Now but I think that Murakami has a special gift for, which is something that I try to foster in my own writing, especially with characters, is he finds details that um, are unique, but not so strange. Um, in in a way that they're they're unique in that perhaps you haven't seen anybody write about them before, but they feel mundane enough that somehow the use of them lends an authenticity to the character and to the story. For example, um, Sukuro he is obsessed with train stations. He's been yeah. obsessed with train stations since he was a little boy, and he grows up to be a man who builds train stations. Mm-hmm. And it's such a weird thing. It's so simple but so weird at the same time because, like, who would who would care about that? He does. Sure. And it, it makes him feel real. Um, or there's another part where, they're t- where he's talking about um, 
he's thinking this in his head that um, this woman is touching him and there's a special spot um, and she touches that special spot and it secretes this special fluid and then that fluid makes them bond and it, it's it's actually not a sexual metaphor even though it sounds like one um, but it sounds like the kind of weird thing that sometimes um, we have in our heads um, little strange things that um, that we think little fake stories that we tell ourselves about what's mm -hmm. going on you know like when we have pain sometimes uh, for me I have pain in a certain thing I can imagine what the pain looks like um, and it's not things that you share with other people because they're weird and they're completely yours but to lend that to a character now all of a sudden that that's flesh mm -hmm. yeah that's true and 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 there's 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 a density to it that I think is it, that 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 is subtle enough that because I think you know, in, in for me, especially in some of the characters like Toru, for example, it's it's a bucket that I didn't know was slowly being filled, and then I just turned around and it was full. Um, and I think that that's that's kind of the easiest way to describe it, um, at least for me, is that you know suddenly I, I felt like I knew the character really well, but I had no idea how I'd gotten there. <laughs> I, th I think that I don't know. Murakami is so dense in some ways, but then so alive. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're talking about literature here. It, it's truly it's it's literature. This isn't um, it's not a novel that you're going to read and go, that was cool. It's the kind of thing that's meant to haunt you. Yeah. And I I, I dream of writing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to be defined. I mean, it, it, you you'll find many quotes from you know people in the literary world that say that Murakami is one of the greatest living novelists and and in a lot of ways I, I I can't find any real good reason to disagree with that um you know every piece of work that I've I've read of his whether I really liked it or not has been has had such a a, a defining um mark has left such a defining mark on me as a person and as a writer that I I, I can't possibly deny his influence on not just me as a, a writer but me as a person as well Oh, definitely. I think that the moment I read him, uh, I mean, he's in the pantheon of of, sure. of writers for me, not only as people who change the way that I see literature and everything, but also change the way I write forever. Uh, mm -hmm. He's had, like I said earlier, he's had a huge influence on the novel that I'm working on now. Um, mm -hmm. Him and Proust and, and, and going back to the whole generalized idea of creativity, uh, I think that sometimes people get embarrassed to share what their influences are. But there's nothing embarrassed about that, embarrassing about that because it's everybody does that in interview after interview. Uh, Murakami says that he is obsessed and his ideal is to mix Raymond Chandler with Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. That's that's his goal in life, or yeah. as a writer, and n nobody's original. Mm -hmm. Everything is gonna reek of something else. The, the originality comes in the mixture. And I definitely think that, that what makes him unique is his mixture. Um, I can definitely, sure. especially in Hard Boiled Wonderland, I can feel the Raymond Chandler. I can feel the Kafka. I can feel the Kafka in almost everything. And I can feel the Dostoevsky in certain things as well. And definitely the Vonnegut. Like, I feel all of his influences, but I wouldn't say he's any of them. Mm -hmm. He doesn't write like any of them. And there's such a magic to that too. I think that you said it best in the sense that you know I, I live my entire life to to as a writer and as an artist in general to have 
the effect of one of his novels on the literary world or, or, or on the minds of, of creative people. You know, I, I wish I could inspire him, inspire someone else the way he's inspired me. Um, and I think that in and of itself is, is such, such a, uh, that in and of itself is more important than whether or not he sounds like a certain person or is trying to sound like a certain person. It's, you know, if you leave art for what it is, you, you just take, you just take it for how it's affected you. And I think Murakami is a great example of how you can take an amalgam of so many different things and turn them into a voice that is wholly unique and entirely inspirational by itself. He says, uh, one thing that I found very interesting and that I think in some way it permeates all of his work as well. He says that his job is to observe people in the world, not to judge mm. them. Sure. And I think that actually that a lot of writers do judge characters. They make associations. This guy's the good guy and this guy's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. This guy's this guy um this guy is married to a bitch. Mm-hmm. Um that's not that's that's not how you're going to make a a book that is going to affect people in the way that um, Murakami does mm-hmm. because the, the characters in real life aren't that simple I mean even you take um, I'm not going to say specific names you take politicians and watching them on television we we can hate them but I guarantee you there's somebody in their life that loves them that sees them the way that nobody else sees them sure. and, and they're not one thing or the other they're both of those things mm-hmm um, and that's that's part of being a actual human. So if you're going to make characters, why not make them human? Um, why not put that complexity of, I don't know whether this person's a good person. I don't know whether this action is the right action. And that seems like uh, more fun to me. And I think to a certain extent, too, right or wrong is a matter of perspective sometimes. You know, I, I think about that from the perspective of my own life, not even looking at literature, but just looking as, at, at the things that I've gone through. And I, I I see how certain actions that I've taken can be viewed from one perspective or one particular person as, as very selfless and from other people as very selfish. You know, I also think about, you know, the time I spend with, with Crystal and how, how different of a version of me she gets than everybody else in the world. And... You know, from that perspective, I think that Murakami's characters have have a density to them that, it, you know, it, for me, it's really hard because I look at Toro from I, I look at Toro from Wind Up Bird Chronicles, and you know, a good a good amount of what he does um, in the book that is really fascinating to me is is both observing people and going through his own life, and you know, at the bottom of a well, I, I still think that's one of the cooler one of the cooler images from the book um, that will always stick with me is the the, the well um, and the house itself. Um, for some odd reason, I picture it very clearly in my head. But you know, the point is that there's 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 not just a there's not just a a, a clear sense of of uh, of no judging, but there's almost I, I don't know how to best say it, but there's almost not even a question as to whether or not you're going to judge this person. You just don't. You know, it's not built into the the narrative that you would need to judge a person. Um, and I think that there's there's an amazingness to the way that's done with a Murakami book that I haven't really seen with any other author. Is that you take every single character for all of their good and their bad, their flaws and their strengths, um, and and you accept them for who they are. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, even some of the more vicious characters are still kind of a mystery. You yeah, know, totally. they, they still, you don't have a concrete hold on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes motivations are revealed that turn things on their head, but still never completely resolve it. I think a, a lot of authors tend to do that as well, where they make you think one thing of a character 
but then they flip it on its head. But then it's like that's supposed to be your definitive opinion of them. Sure. And he doesn't necessarily do that. He's he's just kind of mulling them around. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel uh, like and I feel like he lets them take their own, which goes back to the the thing that you'd been talking about all along about his story writing or his his writing process, which is he kind of just lets them go where they need to go. And I think that's that's really brave of him. And it makes uh, for what I would say some of the most unique literature that I've ever read. Sure. It's it's very rooted in humanity. I don't know how to say it other than that. It's, it, it almost seems repetitious at this point, but it's just so human. Just that even the weirdest things, the book is still rooted in that humanity. Yeah, but not just that for me, but I, I think there's, you know, I, when, when, I, when I step back and I, I, I stop looking at the characters or the narratives, I think there's such a strong sense of confidence that you have to have as a writer to go into a project without any preconceived notions as to where it's going to go i can't even honestly i can't even imagine doing that as a writer um although i really want to try to do that i really want to go into a project without preconceived notions but i can't i can't quite wrap my head around how how brave or how good you have to be at something in order to do that you know so it's 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 fascinating to me philip roth used to write 200 pages before he'd start the novel jeez because he said it would take him 200 pages to figure out what he was talking about. <laughs> and then that's when the story would start. And and one of the things that um, Murakami mentions is, so he writes exactly where, where the way we're talking about. Um, what's what's going to happen here? And he writes the first draft. And he said the reason that the first draft exists is for him to figure out what's going on. And then the reason the second draft exists is to take the knowledge that he learned from the first one and apply it to every part of the second draft. Mm. So once you figure out how the book ends, then you go back and make sure that everything fits together with that knowledge. Oh, that's cool. It it put a completely different perspective on drafts for me. Sure. Uh, I always thought, you know, it was just like honing things in, but that's it definitely makes sense when you look at it through that window. And I can see how that would be really effective considering um the project that you're taking on with Charlie too is almost it almost feels like it would be much more cohesive if you did it that way. Right, and that and that's the thing too that I learned from him in researching this that actually helped with the novel is always make sure that you know in the simplest form what your character wants. Mm. Oh, what, what does what does Toru want? He wants to find his wife. He wants to find the cat. Well, actually, he doesn't want to find the cat. Yeah, I was going to say that's <laughs> that's what he thinks he wants. <laughs> he has to find the cat <laughs> sure. because he wants to find his wife. Yep. Um, but the, and and that's not what the book's about. But that's what propels the story forward. And um, it, it's what the readers latch on to. Sure. This is what makes me go to the next page because you haven't sold me on, on the deep stuff yet. The deep stuff, you know, the, the payoff on the deep stuff in a book is near the end. Sure. So up until that point, nobody's they're not getting any of that stuff. You might be feeling it as a, feeling it as a writer, as a writer, but the readers aren't getting that because they're not there yet. They don't know where this is going. Um, so, the character wanting something and needing something, something to propel them forward is what keeps the reader going. And that is a completely uh, simplized form of it, but it, it should be simple. That, that is the way that you should look at it because otherwise your story tends to drift and you lose the readers or you lose yourself. I think you said it best earlier when you said that it's, you know, there's a very strong sense of humanity to Murakami's writing um, in the sense that we we find goals for ourselves that may not inherently 
give us the things that we're actually looking for, but the goal in and of itself is the thing that we strive for. It's almost like the Moby Dick analogy, right? Like it's it's our we're always hunting our, our own white whales, and you know, for Murakami, um, or at least for Turo in uh, Wind Up, it was the it was the you know his white whale was a cat. And the rest of the journey, the, the, the quest to, to become who he wanted to be or find or, 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 or figure out who he was as a person came along with that. But that was always the, 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 the flag at the end. You know, it's very interesting. Or have, do, you rem- do you ever see the movie Buffalo 66? No, I haven't. I have not. It's um, God, what's his name? Vincent Gallo. I think, mm-hmm. he, I think he directed and wrote it. He's also the star. Um, and there's a beautiful segment at the beginning of the movie. I think it's only like two or three minutes, but it it pulls you into the movie instantly. And essentially, the character is, um, he has to take a leak. He has to go so bad, but he cannot find a place to pee. So he goes into the alley, and then somebody walks in the alley, and he can't pee in the alley. So then he goes here, but the door is locked to the bathroom. And just this segment at the beginning, and that's what a novel is like, except that at the end, something's discovered. Hmm. Interesting. It's 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 a comedy of errors in a way, a novel, right? Because you're gonna leave out the stuff that doesn't matter. So it's it's just a it's it's the twists and the turns in in the hungering for something, whether it's an important thing or not, and the things that you learn along the way that may not even be related to it. And I suppose to a certain extent, um, you know, we we as humans do that too. We kind of bumble our way through our existence, um, and oftentimes we discover things that that are profound or or incredible or life changing, while trying to achieve completely different things. And I think that that's 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 kind of clearly illustrated in almost every single Murakami book in, in some way. Um, and I think that as as a writer, I I have difficulty with that because I I I don't think I've learned how to be that sincere yet. Um, and and I think that that's that's really what it comes down to is there's a sense of sincerity about humanity that Murakami has that that I haven't quite found as a writer yet. And that's it's epitomized in that scene in Fight Club with Tyler Durden and Jack talking in the bathroom. And he says, "You know, my father he told me he said, got to get a high school diploma. So I got a high school diploma. And then I called him on the phone. I said, now what? He says, get a job. So I got a job. And he says, now what? He says, get married. Find a woman. Get married. Now what? And then it, you know his dad didn't know, because that that is life, right? We think that we think that the point of life is oh let's get married we're gonna have kids. But what almost every parent realizes is that after they have the kids and then the kids are gone, they're adults and they're grown up. They go, now what? I thought that oh, that's as, that's as far as I planned my life. That was the thing that was driving me. But w- what is the meaning? What what am I here for? What am I doing? And that's where midlife crisis crisis has come from too, right? You've invested your life into a career and then realize, hmm, what? who am I? What am I? Yeah, I'm not really quite happy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I watch my parents go through that, right? Like I watch, you know, my parents raise myself and my sister. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I didn't really see them start living until, um, you know, after both of us were out of the house and we, we had our own lives and we were um, relatively stable. You know, my dad suddenly started trying to figure out how to play a violin um you know they my mom and my dad traveled quite a bit of the world after that um you know my mom reconnected with all of her siblings and and built very strong relations with them again and it was really interesting to to see how how much bravery it took for them to really take a step back and realize what it is that they actually wanted i feel like a lot of people don't have the guts to do that you know they don't have the guts to to 
to stray away from the path, um, even if the path has found its conclusion and then there's nothing there. You know, I think I think that there's a certain bravery that it takes for, for people to kind of take a step back and say, okay, what is it that I really want and what is it that will really make me happy? And I think um, Murakami characters kind of unintentionally do that. Um, and I think part of the reason why I like Murakami so much is because he lets his characters do that without getting in their way by, by creating a narrative that defines what their futures are supposed to be. And yet at the same time, they're never really brave characters. They're just normal. Yeah, that's they're, true. That's he never true. makes them heroes. Yeah. They're just people. So mm -hmm. even that judgment of not judgment, it, it works in the positive too. He never makes you clear that somebody is, you should be feeling that this person's a hero. Sure. So basically what we're saying is Murakami is life. Ow!